I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Job 1, book of Job, first chapter. And we'll be looking at some passages in that chapter. So the guys have some Bibles so that everybody has one. If you need a Bible, get their attention and they'll get one of those to you. And you won't have to fumble around to find Job. Those Bibles are marked at that book for you. Job chapter 1. Well, the Olympics began this weekend. So for the next couple of weeks, over 11,000 athletes from over 200 countries will compete in over 300 events. And with all of that diversity of personnel and nationalities and different sports, they still all have one thing in common. They will only be as good as their training. And they all know that. And that's why all of them, without exception, have prepared for many years for these next several days. Next month is the 15th anniversary of the worst terror attack in our nation's history. Most of us remember the scenes on television of the massive towers in Manhattan on fire. But what we did not see in those initial moments of the attack were the thousands of emergency personnel, firemen and women, policemen and women and EMTs, who instinctively ran toward the flaming 1,300-foot skyscrapers in 2001. Those people were all doing what they had been taught to do. They were all able to respond as they did because of the training that they had received. Hospital and emergency room personnel are likewise instructed on how to respond in life-threatening situations. Just like the athletes in the Olympics, these first responders have many years of training, and they're only able to do what they do because of that training. Now, there should be a law against advertising school supplies in July. Because the truth is, we're all not ready to think about summer being over at that point. But it's now August, and we've got a month at most before school begins. And that same principle applies in an educational setting. In general, students will do well on their exams in proportion to their preparation. There are, of course, exceptions. There's the kids who cheat. Or there's the freaky brainiac who doesn't study but gets A's and he's the guy everyone hates. But the vast majority will only do well and will only do well as well as their training takes them. And you can apply that same principle to many areas of life. A piano recital, a play performance, making a meal, preparing a sermon. You're only as good as the time and effort you've put in before the event. Your response to something that happens is only as good as your training for it. Your performance is only as good as your preparation. Now, with all of that, consider what the Bible says. In this book of Job, you can stay at chapter 1. I'll have on the screen for you chapter 5. It says, man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. And then in chapter 14, mortals born of woman are a few days and full of trouble. And what those passages are telling us ahead of time 
is that because we live in a fallen world, there will be times of trial and difficulty for all of us. In fact, so common and varied are trials that many of you have heard me say this over the years. Though I certainly don't know all that's going on with all of you, and some of you have not even had as yet the pleasure to meet, I can confidently say this about all of you. You're either in a trial, you've recently emerged from a trial, or you're fixing to go into a trial. These difficult circumstances of all sorts are called trials because something is being tried in them. Something's being tested. We're going to see what that something is just a little bit later. But for now, please understand that just like the athletes or the firemen or the policemen or the EMT or the student or the performer, in that trial, you'll only respond well. You'll only pass that test to the extent that you have trained for it. You see, since these trials are our common lot, we should not think, friends, as many of us do, that just give me a month or two, and when the current trouble is over, I'll then have it together, and I'll be freed from difficulty. Instead, we should learn how to best handle trials because they are the relative constant lot of humanity. And we should train for them before they occur, as they surely will occur. Now, last week, we began a series in the book of Job. And the book of Job, as most of you know, tells the incredible story of suffering in the life of the man for whom it's named. We saw last Sunday that in a single day, Job lost all his possession, all his possessions and his ten children. And in that first message, we answered some questions that all of this raises about God and whether or not God is unfair and whether or not God is in control. You can listen to that message and all of our messages at our website, cbctrenton.com. But today we're going to see Job's initial response to these calamities. And we're going to see what it is we can learn in order to help us in the trials that inevitably come our way. Let's ask God to help us as we do that. Father, we come before you as every moment of every day needy, in need of your help, in need of your aid. Lord, we are small and frail and weak. We live in a world made hostile to us and we toward it by the entrance of sin into your world. And so the environment in which we live is is hostile. It has disease and it has sickness and things that befall us and things that happen to us. And then we are hostile toward one another because we are sinners. And so Lord, all of this has meant that there are difficulties. And in those difficulties, you have told us in your word that you are trying us, that you are testing us to make us better. And so Lord, we need your help with that. We need your help in those trials. And we need your help now as we open your word to learn of you and learn what you have for us in these difficulties that you allow our way. And so, Lord, we again ask for your aid. Give us clear minds and open hearts so that we'll apply your word. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I invite you to look at the outline that's inserted in your program. If you don't have that yet, take that out because we'll be filling in some of the blanks as we do each week as we go here. The first thing that I want you to see that Job, the story of Job teaches us is how to prepare for a trial. 
how to prepare for a trial. I recently read a series on suffering well online, and one of the authors of the articles in that series said this, it's best to be equipped with a rock-solid theology of suffering while not yet in the midst of it, so that when you do go through various trials, you'll be able to fight the unbiblical attitudes, thoughts, and actions that we're tempted to have in those trying times. The best defense against responding to suffering unrighteously is to prepare to suffer well before that suffering comes. I really don't believe I can stress enough how important it is to have a rock-solid theology of suffering before one actually suffers. Because in the midst of some exceedingly painful trial, the craziness of the moment often doesn't allow for cool contemplation and sound theological reasoning. The solid foundation that keeps you grounded can't be being constructed in the middle of that storm. It needs to be set firmly in place beforehand so that it can serve as a sure and steadfast anchor in the midst of whatever turmoil we might experience. We have to prepare for what's inevitably coming before it comes. And Job teaches us how to prepare for a trial. Job teaches us that we don't have to fall apart when things fall apart. We can be prepared so that when things fall apart, I, you, do not have to fall apart. We can prepare. Now, how so? I say in your outline. We prepare by, as we pursue our first priority. Pursue your first priority. Verse 1 of chapter 1 of Job. Job was blameless and upright. He feared God and he shunned evil. God was clearly, in this very first description of this man, clearly his first priority. And he is to be our first priority. And that's why in your outline, because I'm referring to God, I say, pursue your first priority. You notice priority there is capitalized. And that's because the first priority for us is to be, as it was for Job, God himself. Jesus told us that memorably, you may recall. When he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? The Bible says, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And here's a man, Job. Many, many, many years before Jesus spoke those words, and even before those words that are quoted from the Old Testament were penned in the Old Testament. Job lived before that. But still, Job was living that out. God as his first priority. And this first verse says of Job that he was blameless and he was upright. As I said last week, it doesn't mean that he was sinless. He acknowledges his own sin in chapter 7. But that first word, blameless, comes from a root Hebrew word that means to be complete. And it usually refers to a person's spiritual maturity and the integrity of his inner being. And then that next term, that he was upright, it means straight or right. And it's used in many contexts dealing with human behavior that's in line with God's ways. And together, those, blameless and upright, provide a way to describe Job's high moral character. And then it says in verse 1, he feared God and he shunned evil. He feared God. Now that word fear in the Old Testament that you read many times, fear of the Lord. We're going to see one such instance in a moment. 
But you see that it means to be in awe of, to revere God. That is, to reverence God above everyone and everything else. To fear the Lord is to place the Lord first, to make God the priority in all things. And that's why the book of Proverbs says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, why is that? How is it that the fear or the reverence or the awe of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? Well, wisdom is the application of what we know biblically. It's to apply, appropriate what we know, put it into practice. How is it that the fear of the Lord helps us to do that? Well, here's how. It sets in order the creator-creature distinction. When we reverence the Lord, when we hold Him in awe... We are being reminded that he's the creator and we are the creature. We're being reminded that life is centered on God, that it's first about him. And Job was a man who obeyed the Lord. He was moral. He was upright. But he was a man who feared, revered, held in awe his God. And shunned evil, all things that would be displeasing to his God. So here's what that means, friends. For us, before the trial occurs, each of us needs to decide what we believe about God before the test happens. What do you believe about God right now in this moment? Do you fear God? Do you revere God? Do you hold Him in awe? Is He most important? Or is it you and your stuff? And before the test comes, if we fear God, if we revere him, if we place him in our hearts on the throne that he occupies, then that means we will do things like avail ourselves of what are called the means of grace in order for us to have a closer and closer relationship with this God, the means of grace, God's word. That we'll prepare for the trials that will inevitably come because we find ourselves in God's word on a regular basis. Hearing God's word, being taught God's word, speaking of God's word. And another means of those graces, not only God's word, but God's people. That I'm not only reading God's word, but I am with God's people who are doing the same thing. And we're interacting about God's word and how it applies to what's happening in our lives. If I'm going to do that with God's people, that means I got to be with them. I got to show up. Now, I'm not going to say much about this, about showing up, because I'm talking to people who showed up. We pastors sometimes do that. You guys have endured that. I don't think much from me. I try not to do that. Complain about people who are not here to people who are here. So for those of you that are here regularly, you can just tune out for just a moment. But, brothers and sisters, for those of you who are not, for those of you who may have come today, but it's hit or miss whether you'll be here today or we're here last week or we'll be here next week. And some of you are like that. When you wake up on Sunday morning, it's not a a sure thing we're going to be with God's people. And what goes through the house is, hey, we going today? And then you sort of have to decide, do I really feel like it, and all of that. Now, there are reasons not to be here. People are sick. People are out of town. People have to work. But friends, it should not be a question for us whether or not we are going to be with God's people when God's people gather. 
particularly on the Lord's Day as we gather to worship Him and to learn of Him and to fellowship together and encourage each other as a means of grace to prepare us for what life has for us. And in addition, there's not only the people here, but there are the people in the body of Christ at large who write and and blog, publish books that are designed to help you and help me in our walk with the Lord and prepare us. If you make these the habit of life, they will train you for life. If you make them the habit of your life, they will train you for that life. It's been my experience that the people who most need what is said on Sunday are the ones who are here consistently to hear it. Our church has over 400 people as members and regular attenders. On a good Sunday, about 300 will be in attendance. Last week, there were 299. Now, that's over 25% who are either out of town or sick or working or just not in the habit, hit or miss. And that percentage, by the way, is not unique to us. I've talked to other pastors about this, but it is, it is a shame. Those who don't come regularly need what is said at church most because their lives are a mess. And they're all the more messy because they don't come. Because they're not availing themselves of this means of grace. And when things completely unravel, mark my word, they will be back to be patched up. And we will gladly receive and patch up every brother or sister. So I'm not saying that we won't. We will. Gladly so. But please understand, friends, that every day and every Lord's Day particularly, you are preparing for the next test to come. You prepare for the inevitable trials as you pursue your first priority. And that first priority for you, for me, and for Job is God. And you do that through the means of grace. And as you, I say, secondly in your outline. You pursue your first priority and, B, pursue your second priority. Your first priority is God. But notice the second priority is not capital priority, capital P. What is that? Verses 4 and 5 of Job 1. Verse 4. Job's sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays. And they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. Now, Job, the man, goes back probably to the time of of Abraham. So about 2,000 years before Christ, Um, and he is 4,000 years removed then from, from us. He was before Moses. He was before the law then. And in the days before the law, the patriarch of the family served as priest for the family. Now, why he does this shortly after a period of feasting, as the passage says, may well be because in his children's celebrations, they might have sinned in the process. Or it might have been a convenient way to schedule this aspect of his worship. Every birthday, I'll offer sacrifice on behalf of my children. But in any case, it's clear that Job cared deeply for his family and for their spiritual well-being. And well, he should, of course, since the Bible gives not only that first great commandment to love God, but also 
Jesus said, this is the second great commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. So we are to love God on a vertical plane. But we are to love others on a horizontal plane. And of course, we have a priority relationship with those that God has placed in our families and given us responsibility for. But here I want you to see this about Job's relationship to his family. He saw them as a priority. He cared for them deeply. He offered sacrifice on their behalf. He was the spiritual leader of their home. But he pursued them as his second priority, not his first. As important as his children were, they were still not as important as God. Have you ever thought about that? Remember the Bible says you have a first commandment and the second is like it. Jesus ranks them. (laughs) Love the Lord your God is first, first priority. And everything else and everyone else is second. Because Job has prepared by pursuing God and because everyone and everything else was second... Even though when he got the news that his ten children were gone, he grieved, the Bible tells us, he shaved his head, he tore his robe, which was a customary way of expressing his grief. But in the midst of that, he could make this incredible statement in verse 21. Look at verse 21. Told of the death of his ten children, Job says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave. And the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. My children are gone. But the Lord gave them. And the Lord has taken them away. And in the midst of that, in the good times and in the bad times, may the name of the Lord be Be praised. Hear me, friends. You can only say that when you have prepared yourself for the trials that will come. When you have consistently made God your priority. It's a battle for me. It's a battle for you. Job knew his children were ultimately not his. They were God's. And those of us who have children need to think that way. I'm a steward of these children for God. Throughout the day, often, when I'm in my office here, when I'm in my vehicle, often, I pray for my daughters. When I'm driving, I don't close my eyes. You'll be glad to know. But I will just breathe a prayer. Lord, help Lainey with whatever she's doing. She just returned Friday from serving the summer at camp. Many times. Lord, help Lainey with counseling those kids. Keep her safe. Grant her the energy she needs, the sleep she needs, the food that she needs with her diet. Annie, and whatever she has going on. And usually for Annie, I just say, whatever she has going on. Because I can't keep track. But I'll often add something like, Lord, 
help my girls. And then I catch myself and I say, Lord, they're your girls. They're your girls. Because, see, I don't know what happens. I don't know what happens today, tomorrow, next week. And to whom do they belong? And to whom do all things and all persons belong? And, of course, the answer is God. In order to do this, like Job did, you've got to be able to remember, friends, the temporary nature of this life. As precious as many aspects of it are, and certainly our relationships within our families are to be that, they are still temporary, and God is eternal. Remember that the things that matter most, as we say sometimes tritely but true, the things that matter most are not things And the one, capital O, who matters most, owns the people and things in our lives. Remember that the game, if we call it that, the game of life is won or lost in practice. It's won or lost in preparation, not in the midst of the battle of the trial. And you prepare for it. You prepare for it with your words and with your actions prior to the time that it comes. Job shows us how to prepare for trial. He shows us the second thing. And that is how to endure a trial. How to endure a trial. You can endure well if you're prepared well. So how do I prepare well? How do you prepare well? I say in your outline, embrace what you know. Embrace what you know. So what is it you know that will help you in the midst of the trial. Well, one of the things you know is what I've already said and what the Bible, more importantly, says, and that is that trials are going to come. So in the midst of the trial, when it comes, don't be surprised. (laughs) Remind yourself of what you know. This stuff happens. Trials come. Man born of woman is a few days and full of trouble, says the Bible. And so I shouldn't be surprised that this thing has happened. And so you, as you think about these things you know, I'm going to give you a short list of them. You're helping yourself then to go through them. You're calling upon that which you've prepared with. Reminding yourself of those things and embracing those things that you know. One of them is you know this should not, this is not unusual. In a fallen world, things happen. They happen to all people, including God's people. And if you do that, if you remind yourself of that, you won't take the approach that was the case when I was in Sunday school as a boy. I can remember in my Sunday school class that my teacher had put a poster on the wall. And the poster was in the design of the then-current Coca-Cola advertisement. They've had a bunch of them over the years. Uh, The real thing, Coke is the real thing, remember that, many years ago. I don't know what it is now. But at that time, it was things go better with Coke. And this poster looked just like the red and white colors and the wave. But it said instead of things go better with Coke, it said things go better with Jesus. And I remember years later, as I was thinking about my upbringing and church and Sunday school, I can still see that poster there and thinking to myself, you know, that's not quite accurate. You know... Things in your life with Jesus may not change at all. 
In fact, as a Christian, things could get worse for you. Depending on how your family takes to that, your co-workers. It's not that the things change. The things don't change. They may get actually worse. But hear this, your perspective on things changes radically with Jesus. And it changes radically when you embrace what you know. And what do I know? I know that these things happen in a fallen world. I know that trials can only come from the hand of my God. I know that. And so this thing that has come to me should not be thought strange, whatever it is. And also I know that it cannot come to me except by the hand of God. I remind you that he gave permission to Satan in chapter 1 to touch Job and his family. He gave permission. Satan had to get permission from Almighty God to do that. And then as you, what we rehearsed last week with the disasters that befell Job... From whom did that lightning come that's called the fire of God in verse 16 that took Job's 7,000 sheep and his servants? From whom did the tornado called the mighty wind in verse 19 come that destroyed the house at which Job's children were celebrating a birthday? From whom do these things come? They're all from the hand of God. The prophet Isaiah, speaking on behalf of the Lord, says, I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. And you prepare yourself for the inevitable things that come by asking yourself, what do I believe about God before they happen? And do you believe that God is in control even in the bad stuff? Or you like the TV preacher who says, God doesn't have anything to do with the bad stuff. That's Satan run amok. Listen, Satan's not running amok. Satan's on a leash and it's God's leash. You know that God is in control, so your suffering is not random. And you know as well that God is good. You know trials are going to come. You know God is in control. And you know this God is in con- who is in control is not just almighty, sovereign, but thanks be to God, he is good. And so the Bible can say, famously in Romans 8, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Josh McPherson is the lead pastor of Grace Covenant Church. A few years ago, along with his wife, welcomed his fourth child into their family. The second of their four children to be born with a disability. And with regard to this second special child, Pastor Josh shared with his congregation what he wrote in his journal just before, this is before they learned that their son Gideon would, like his brother, live with spina bifida. He said this to his congregation regarding what he wrote in his journal. He wrote to God in his journal, we'll entrust ourselves into your hands. We love you, Father. Thanks for being good and for being in control. There is nothing sweeter nor brings more comfort than this. You do all things well. And then he said to his congregation, 45 minutes after writing those words, I heard the words for the second time in my life, spina bifida. And nothing about what I wrote changed. 
Will it be hard in the days to come? He said to them, most definitely. Has it changed our family forever? Completely. Is there pain? Absolutely. Is there heartache? Certainly. But oh, how much more quickly the sun broke through the clouds this time. For we knew that there was design in the suffering. And that brings tremendous hope. There's a man prepared for what God does. He was able to endure because of his preparation and remembering what it is he knows about God. So you embrace what you know. You know that these trials come. You know that God is in control. You know that this God is good. Embrace that. But here's what I get. As I counsel God's people when things happen who have not prepared, and I rehearse these, this is what I get. I know, I know. Do you see the difference, friends, between I know, I know, and I know God is good. I know God's in control. I know that these things happen to me and to everyone in a fallen world. I know this with conviction and therefore I embrace it. I don't just know it intellectually. I embrace it. Embrace what you know. I say in your outline. And and also rehearse what you need to know. Embrace what you know. Rehearse what you need to know. Now, this is for a particular category of people, this rehearse what you need to know, because you may be saying, "Okay, I'm in a trial. I'm in a trial right now, pastor. And I was clearly unprepared. So now what? I mean, I'm in this trial now and I'm reaching for the reserve to help me through it. And there's no reserve there because I haven't prepared for it. So now what do I do? Well, what's being tested, dear friends, remember, what's being tested is what you believe, particularly what you believe about God. What's being tested in this trial? And that's why the title of this message at the top of your outline is Faith on Trial. Faith is belief, what you believe on trial. What's being tested is what you believe. That's what James chapter 1 famously says. You know that the testing of your faith. You know that the testing of what you believe produces perseverance so that you may may be mature and complete. So rehearse what it is you know, and you know that's what what is being tested is what you believe. And so remind yourself now in the midst of the trial, it would have been better to prepare. We already got that. You didn't. You're in it. So now rehearse what it is that you believe, even in the midst of the trial. And do you believe that God does this good thing in the testing of of your faith, producing perseverance and making you mature and complete? Do you believe that? Romans chapter 5, we glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God has a good end game, ultimately, through this thing, whatever it is? So rehearse what you need to know. This is a trial. What I believe is on trial. Do I believe that God has a good purpose? Do I believe what I should have embraced earlier, that God is in control, that God is that God is good, that God is doing something in the trial? And rehearse this. If you're in a trial, unprepared. Rehearse this. Rehearse repentance. Repentance for not practicing. 
and appropriating these truths. For not availing yourself of the means of grace. Confess your sin. Repent. And God will take you through this trial. And he will bring you out of it better than you entered it. Job teaches us how to prepare for a trial. How to endure a trial. And then lastly in your outline. How to gain from a trial. Job teaches us how to gain from a trial. How do you gain from whatever it is you're in or you're going to be in? Well, in a nutshell, here it is. Trust the good God who is in control. Trust the good God who is in control. You see, friends, the the perspective that you take into that trial will determine the outcome of that trial. Years ago, when I was working as a computer programmer, and I was working in an office setting, and I went into the... uh, office cafeteria on the bulletin board in there they had a bunch of stuff penned but one thing caught my eye it was a a statement several sentences long from Charles Swindoll some of you know who Charles Swindoll is and uh, he's a author former pastor seminary uh, president and he's been on the radio for many years but someone had penned this statement up from Charles Swindoll and I made a copy of it on the copier Swindoll said, the longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Attitude, to me, is more important than facts. It's more important than the past, than education, than money, than circumstances, than failure, than successes, than what other people think or say or do. It is more important than appearance, giftedness, or skill. It will make or break a company, a church, a home. The remarkable thing is we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we'll embrace for that day. We cannot change our past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play the one string we have, and that is our attitude. I am convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. And so it is with you. We are in charge of our attitudes. Now, friends, that's not just the power of positive thinking. Okay? <laughs> we talk about attitudes here. We're talking about attitudes that are shaped by what I shared earlier. These truths we believe about God being in control and God being good and God having an end game in this trial that he is taking me through. Some of you know the name Ron Hamilton. He's written a number of songs, uh, a musician. He's also famous for another reason that I'll bring up in a moment. But I read his testimony recently. And his testimony is this. He wrote, when I was 27 years old, on a routine visit to the eye doctor, something unusual was discovered in my left eye. After several weeks of testing, I was rolled into the operating room for surgery on my eye. Only God knew what the outcome of that surgery would be. As I slowly regained consciousness several hours later, my wife gave me the startling news. The doctor found cancer. Your left eye is gone. Looking back, I can clearly see how God prepared me for this experience. Several years before I lost my eye, God's truth had dramatically changed my life. Verses like Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, had shown me I'm a sinner who needed God's help. 
Then I read, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In John 3.16, God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. I'll never forget kneeling all alone by my bed one night and telling the Lord that I confess my sin and I repent of my sin. Believing that Jesus Christ had died on the cross for me, I asked Him to forgive me and become my Savior. Since that night, my life has been dramatically different because Jesus Christ has been in control. I not only have the joy of knowing that I'm going to heaven when I die, but I also have the assurance that God is working all things together for good in my life right now. Now that's the testimony of Ron Hamilton, which some of you know perhaps better as Patch the Pirate. You know, the kid's Christian song. So he has his eye removed. He winds up with this patch on his left eye. And God gives him this ministry of being patched the pirate, you know, to millions of children around around the world. But before he and his wife started the patch the pirate ministry, one of the songs Ron Hamilton wrote was Rejoice in the Lord. Which contains his testimony in song. And here's what it says. God never moves. Without purpose or plan, when trying his servant and molding a man. Give thanks to the Lord, though your testing seems long. In darkness he giveth a song. He says, I could not see through the shadows ahead, so I looked at the cross of my Savior instead. I bowed to the will of the Master that day, then peace came and tears fled away. Now I can see testing comes from above. God strengthens his children and he purges in love. My father knows best and I trust in his care. Through purging, more fruit I will bear. And the refrain of that song is this. Oh, rejoice in the Lord. He makes no mistake. He knoweth the end of each path that I take. And when I am tried and purified, I shall come forth as gold. You know, he was almost quoting in that refrain the book of Job. Because in Job 23, here's what Job says. He knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. Job teaches us how to prepare for a trial, how to endure a trial, and how to gain from a trial. That's the perspective, that's the attitude that gains from a trial. Your take-home truth. Trials teach best when we're prepared for the test. Trials teach best when we're prepared for the test. Now, we're going to bow and pray in just a moment. As we do, I want to invite any who have not come to the Lord Jesus Christ, as Ron Hamilton testified, that prepared him for the trial that God had for him. It was his relationship with this God so that he could prioritize this God and love this God with all of his heart and all of his mind and all of his soul. And so that he could put everything else into perspective, that this life is temporary. He could see clearly, even with only one eye, he could see through the eyes of faith. But it was only because his life had been changed from the inside out by Jesus Christ. So friends, all of the stuff I've said only applies to those who know Jesus. But you can know Jesus. You can begin a relationship with Jesus today in this moment.
So you see on the screen, realize you're a sinner. Recognize Christ died for your sin. Repent of your sin. Receive Jesus Christ into your life. We're going to bow and pray. And when we do, you say from your heart to God, Lord, I recognize I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus died to forgive all of my sin. And so I ask you to forgive me and I am going to follow you with my life. I give my life to you. Thank you for saving me. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for your word, which teaches us about you and about us and about your world. Lord, we thank you for the raw, unvarnished way in which you describe the things that have happened to better people than us. We look at Job and we look at his upright character. He was one of the, he was the greatest man in the East, your word says. And Lord, I compare myself to him and I don't compare. So why should I expect that only good things would happen to me? Why should I expect that only good, that good things would happen to me at all in a fallen world and as a sinner? And so thank you for instructing me and instructing us about why this world has fallen and how we've contributed to it and then how we can prepare for those things that you ordained to come our way. I pray, Lord, that every person here would take to heart what has been said and prepare using the means of grace for those things that you have in store for them or that they're going through right now. And Lord, I pray that in this sacred moment you would draw some out of the world into yourself. Helping them to see their need for a relationship with the God who made them and the God who is overseeing all that's happening in his world. That they see that this God has come to earth in Jesus Christ and done for them what they could not do for themselves. Lord, save them. Change them from the inside out. So that they, like we, who have been changed by Jesus, might be lips and lives that live for his glory. And we pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.